the sorrows of the bereaved spread before Jesus. Matthew fourteen twelve, And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Concerning these words, I would observe three things. One, on what occasion that was, that we have an account of in the text. It was an occasion of the death of John the Baptist, who was a person whose business it had been to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. He was a minister of Jesus Christ, and had been improved to do great service, was an instrument of much good to many in Judea, in Jerusalem, in his lifetime. He was cruelly murdered by Herod at the instigation of Herodias, having exposed himself to her malice by faithfully reproving them for their incestuous wickedness. 2. We may observe who the persons were spoken of in the text. They were those that had been the disciples of John the Baptist, that had sat at his feet to hear him preach the gospel, that were his constant followers, that were with him as those that received great benefit by his ministry, and were, as it were, his children. 3. We may observe their behavior on this occasion, consisting in two things. Number one, that whereby they showed their regard to the remains of the deceased. They took up the body and buried it. It had been used in a barbarous manner by others that had also been his hearers and were under special obligations to have treated him with honor. They cruelly murdered him by severing his head from his body and his head was carried in a charger to Herodias, that she, instead of paying that respect that was due to the remains of so venerable a person, might have her malice and cruelty gratified by such a spectacle, and that she might thence take occasion to insult the dead. While that part of the dead body was thus used by Herodias, his disciples, out of respect and honor to their master and teacher, decently interred the rest. Number two, that which they did, consequent on this, for God's glory and their own good. They went and told Jesus, him they knew to be one, that their master John, while he lived, had testified a great regard to. Jesus was he whose forerunner John was, whom he had preached, and of whom he has said, Behold the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sin of the world, and... This is he of whom I said, After me cometh one that is preferred before me, and whom he saw, and bear record that this is the Son of God. And probably they knew that Christ was one that had put great honor upon John their teacher in his lifetime. For he, though he was the Son of God, and John's Maker and Savior, yet came to him to be baptized of him. And has said of him that among those that were born of women, there had not risen a greater than John the Baptist. It was now a sorrowful time with John's disciples, when they were thus bereaved of him whose teachings they had sat under, and the manner of his death was doubtless very grievous to them. They were like a company of sorrowful, distressed, bereaved children, and what do they do in their sorrows but go to Jesus with their complaint? The first thing that they do, after paying proper regards to the remains of their dear master, is to go to Christ, to spread their case before him, seeking comfort and help from him. Thus they sought their own benefit. And probably one end of their immediately going and telling Jesus was that he, being informed of it, 
might conduct himself accordingly as his wisdom should direct for the interests of his own kingdom. When so great a person as John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, was thus martyred, it was a great event in which the common cause in which both Christ and he were engaged was greatly concerned. It was therefore fit that he that was at the head of the whole affair should be informed of it for his future conduct in the affairs of his kingdom. And accordingly we find that Jesus seems immediately to be influenced in his conduct by these tidings, as you may see in the next verse. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by a ship into a desert place apart. Thus John's disciples sought God's glory. The observation from the words that I would make the subject of my discourse at this time is this. When anyone is taken away by death that has been imminent in the work of the gospel ministry, such as are thereby bereaved, should go and spread their calamity before Jesus. Though in handling this subject, I might particularly speak to several propositions that are contained in this observation, and many things might profitably be insisted on under it, if there were room for it within the compass of a sermon, yet I shall only give the reasons of the doctrine, and then hasten to the application. The following reasons may be given why, in case of such an awful dispensation of providence, those that are concerned in it and bereaved by it should go and spread their sorrows before Jesus. Number one, Christ is one that is ready to pity the afflicted. It is natural for persons that are bereaved of any that are dear to them, and for all under deep sorrow, to seek some that they may declare and lay open their griefs to that they have good reason to think will pity them, and have a fellow feeling with them of their distress. The heart that is full of grief wants vent, and desires to pour out its complaint, but it seeks a compassionate friend to pour it out before. Christ is such an one above all others. He of old, before his incarnation, manifested himself full of compassion towards his people. For that is Jesus that is spoken of, in Isaiah 43, verse 9, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and carried them all the days of old. And when he was upon earth in his state of humiliation, he was a most wonderful instance of a tender, pitiful, compassionate spirit that ever appeared in the world. How often are we told of his having compassion on one and another? So Matthew fifteen thirty two. Then Jesus called his disciples and said unto them, I have compassion on the multitude. So he had compassion on the man possessed with devils. Mark 5, verse 19. Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done to thee, and hath had compassion on thee. So we read of his pity in the mother that was bereaved of her son. Luke 7, verse 13. There we have an account. When Christ went into the city of Nain, and met the people carrying out a dead man, the only son of his mother, that was a widow, that when he saw her, he had compassion on her. So when the two blind men that sat by the wayside cried to Jesus, as he passed by, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. 
we read that Jesus had compassion on them. Matthew twenty thirty nine. So we read of his being moved with compassion. Matthew 14, verse 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude. And when he saw them, he was moved with compassion. His speeches to his disciples were full of compassion, especially those that he uttered a little before his death, of which we have an account in the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John. His miracles were almost universally deeds of pity to persons under affliction. And seeing such a pitiful heart appeared in him on all occasions, no wonder that John's disciples, when bereaved of their dear guide and teacher, and their hearts were full of sorrow, came to him for pity, which likewise induced Mary and Martha to come and fall down, pouring out their tears at Jesus' feet. When their dear brother Lazarus was dead... Other Jews came to comfort them, before Jesus came, whom they little regarded. But when they heard that Jesus was come, they soon go and spread their sorrows before him. They were assured that he would pity them, and their expectation was not frustrated, for he was most tenderly affected and moved at their tears. We are told that on that occasion he groaned in spirit and was troubled. John 11.33 And when he came to the grave, it is observed, and a special note seems to be set upon it, that he wept. Verse 35. It was one that wept with those that wept, and indeed it was mere pity that brought him into the world, and induced him not only to shed tears, but to shed his blood. He poured out his blood as water on the earth, out of compassion to the poor, miserable children of men. And when do we ever read of any one person coming to him, when on earth, with a heavy heart, or under any kind of sorrow or distress for pity or help, but what met with a kind and compassionate reception? And he has the same compassion now. He is ascended into glory. There is still the same encouragement for bereaved ones to go and spread their sorrows before him. Afflicted persons love to speak of their sorrows to them that have had experience of affliction and know what sorrow is. But there is none on earth or in heaven that ever had so much experience of sorrow as Christ. Therefore he knows how to pity the sorrowful, and especially may we be confident that he is ready to pity those that are bereaved of a faithful minister, because such a bereavement is a calamity that concerns the souls of men. And Christ hath especially shown his pity to men's souls, for it was chiefly for them that he died, to relieve the miseries of the soul especially, is it that he hath provided. And it was from pity to the souls of men that he made that provision for them that he hath done, in appointing such an order of men as gospel ministers, and in sending them forth to preach the gospel. It was because he had compassion on men's souls, that he hath appointed ministers to watch for souls. Number two, Christ has purchased all that persons need under such a bereavement. He has purchased all that miserable men stand in need of under all their calamities, and comfort under every sort of affliction, and therefore that his invitation to those that labor and are heavy laden to come to him for rest may be understood in the most extensive sense, to extend to those that are heavy laden with either natural or moral evil. He has purchased divine cordials and supports for those hearts that are ready to sink. 
He has purchased all needed comfort and help for the widow and the fatherless. He has purchased a sanctified improvement and fruit of affliction for all such as come to him and spread their sorrow before him. He has purchased those things that are sufficient to make up their loss, that are bereaved of a great blessing and an imminent minister of the gospel. It is he that has purchased those divine blessings, those influences and fruits of the Spirit of God, that the work of the ministry is appointed to be the means of. Faithful ministers themselves are the fruits of his purchase, and he has purchased all those gifts and graces whereby ministers to become faithful, imminent, and successful. And therefore, when he ascended up on high, he received such gifts for men. Ephesians 4, 8, and so on. So that he purchased all that is needed to make up for the loss that is sustained by the death of an imminent minister. Number three, Christ is able to afford all that help that is needed in such a case. His power and his wisdom are as sufficient as his purpose and answerable to his compassion. By the bowels of his mercies, the love and tenderness of his heart, he is disposed to help those that are in affliction, and his ability is answerable to his disposition. He is able to support the heart under the heaviest sorrows, and to give light in the greatest darkness. He can divide the thickest cloud with beams of heavenly light and comfort. He is one that gives songs in the night and turns the shadow of death into the morning. He has power to make up the loss of those that are bereaved by the death of the most eminent minister. His own presence with the bereaved is sufficient. If the great shepherd and bishop of souls be present, how much more is this than enough to supply the want of any under-shepherd? And then he is able to furnish others with like gifts and graces for that work. Persons under sorrowful bereavements are ready to go and lay open their sorrows to them that they think will be ready to pity them, though they know they can but pity them and cannot help them. How much more is here in such a case to induce us to go to Jesus, who is not only so ready to pity, but so able to help, able abundantly more than to fill up the breach, and able to turn all our sorrows into joy. Number four, the consideration of the special office of Christ and the work that he has undertaken for his people should engage them to go and spread such a calamity as the bereavement of a faithful and eminent minister before him, for he is the head of the body, the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord of the harvest, that has undertaken the care of the whole church and has the absolute government of it in his hand and the supreme disposal and management of all ecclesiastical affairs to whom belongs the care of the universal church and every part of it with respect to its supply with such guides, officers, and ordinances as it stands in need of. In case of bereavement of an eminent minister, it was he that sent forth such a minister, appointed him his charge, and furnished him for his work, continued and assisted him in it, and in his own time removed him. And it is he that, in such a case, by his office, has the care of filling up the vacancy, and furnishing, establishing, and assisting successors, and supplying all the wants of bereaved churches." It is surely, therefore, suitable and natural to go to him in such a case and spread such a calamity before him. Sermon Application I come now to apply what has been said to the sorrowful occasion of our being thus assembled at this time, even the death of that aged servant of God, who has long been imminent in the work of the gospel ministry in this place. There are many that may well look on themselves as nearly concerned in this awful providence and shares in the bereavement. 
all of whom should be directed by this doctrine to go and spread their affliction before Jesus, that compassionate, all-sufficient head of the church and savior of the body, that merciful and faithful high priest that knows how to pity the afflicted. And particularly it now becomes and concerns you that belong to this church and congregation that are bereaved of your aged and eminent minister and father that has so long been a great blessing to you, now to go and tell Jesus. The disciples of John spoken of in the text were those that were ordinarily under his instruction and were his constant hearers, as it has been with you with respect to your aged pastor that is now taken from you. Therefore be exhorted to do as they did. Do not think that you have finished your duty when you have taken up his body and buried it, and have shown respect to his memory and remains at his funeral. This is the least part of your duty. That which mainly concerns you under this awful providence is between Christ and your own souls. God has now taken away from you an able and faithful minister of the New Testament, one that had long been a father to you and a father in our Israel, a person of uncommon natural abilities and distinguished learning, a great divine, a very comprehensive knowledge, and of a solid, accurate judgment. Judiciousness and wisdom were eminently his character. He was one of eminent gifts, qualifying him for all parts of the work of the ministry, and there appeared a savor of holiness in his exercise of those gifts in public and private, so that he improved them as a servant of Christ and a man of God. He was negligent of the talents which his Lord had committed to him. You need not be told with what constant diligence he improved them, how studious at home and how laborious in his public work. He ever devoted himself to the work which he was called, the ministry which he had received of the Lord. He took heed to fulfill and pursued it with a constant and steadfast, even mind through all its difficulties. You know his manner of addressing heaven is his public prayers with you and for you. With that, what sanctity, humility, faith, and fervency, he seemed to apply himself to the Father of lights from time to time when he stood in this desk as your mouth to God and interceding for you, pleading with God through the grace and merits of a glorious mediator. And you know his manner of applying himself to you when he came to you from time to time in the name of the Lord. In his public ministry, he mainly insisted on the most weighty and important things of religion. He was eminently an evangelical preacher. Evangelical subjects seemed to be his delight. Christ was the great subject of his preaching, and he much insisted on those things that did nearly concern the essence and power of religion, and had a peculiar faculty of judiciously and clearly handling the doctrines he insisted on, and treating properly whatever subject he took in hand and of selecting the most weighty arguments and motives to enforce and set home those things that concern Christian experience and practice. His subjects were always weighty, and his manner of treating them peculiarly happy, showing the strength and accuracy of his judgment, and ever breathing forth a spirit of piety and a deep sense of the things he delivered on his heart. His sermons were none of them mean, but were all solid, wise compositions. His words were none of them vain, but were all weighty. And you need not be told with what weight the welfare of your soul seemed to lie on his heart, and how he instructed and reproved and warned and exhorted you with all authority, and with a fatherly tender concern for your eternal good, and with what wisdom he presided in the house of God, and guided its affairs, and also counseled and directed you in private under your particular soul exercises and difficulties. You know how he has brought you up, 
for most of you have been trained up from your childhood under his ministry, with what authority and with what judgment, prudence and steadiness he has conducted you, as well as meekness and gentleness. You know his manner of going in and out among you, how exemplary his walk and conversation has been, with what gravity, judgment and savor of holiness he has walked before you as a man of God. You have enjoyed great advantages for souls good under his ministry. That you had such a minister was your privilege and your honor. He had been an ornament to the town of Hatfield, and his presence and conversation amongst you has been both profitable and pleasant. For though it was such as did peculiarly command awe and respect, yet it was at the same time humble and condescending. It tended both to instruct and entertain those that he conversed with. As a wise man and endued with knowledge, he showed out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But now it has pleased a holy God to take him away from you. You will see his face and hear his voice no more in the land of the living. You will no more have the comfort and benefits of his presence with you and the exercise of his ministry among you. Therefore now go to Jesus, the supreme head of the church and bishop of souls. Your pastor is dead and will not live again till the last day. But Christ, the chief shepherd, though he was dead, is now alive, and behold, he lives forevermore. He ever lives to provide for his church and to guide and feed his flock. Go to that Jesus whom your deceased pastor preached and to whom he earnestly invited you while he lived and give thanks for the many blessings you enjoyed in him. Remember how you have received and heard and hold fast that no man take your crown and go and humble yourselves also before him that you made no better improvement of the ministry of your pastor while he lived, and beg of him a sanctified improvement of his awful hand in taking him away, and that he would help you to remember his warnings and counsels that you too much slighted whilst you had them, lest those warnings and counsels cry against you and rise up in judgment against you another day, lest you see your pastor that so affectionately and earnestly and so often and for so long a time continued to exhort you and earnestly prayed for you while he lived, rising up in judgment and bearing testimony against you, declaring how constantly and laboriously he entreated and called upon you and how obstinately some of you have slighted his counsels and lest you see him sitting with Christ to judge and condemn you and adoring his awful justice on your aggravated punishment. All you that have an interest in Jesus, now go to him on this occasion and tell him of your bereavement and beg of him that he would not depart from you, but that he would make up his loss in your own immediate presence. Go to him for your surviving pastor, that he would be with him, and furnish him more and more for, and assist him in that great work that is now wholly devolved upon him, and make him also a burning and shining light amongst you, and that you may have of the presence and blessing of Jesus with you and him. And now, since I am called to speak in the name of Christ on this solemn occasion, I would apply myself to the near relations of the deceased who are especially to be looked upon as a bereaved. God in his holy providence has taken from you one that has been a great blessing, comfort, and honor to you, and deservedly very dear to you and honored of you. The doctrine we are upon directs you what to do in your present circumstances, to go to Jesus to go and spread your affliction before an all-sufficient Redeemer. And, and particularly, I would apply myself to the honored relict, who stood in the nearest relation of any to the deceased, when God by this awful providence has made a sorrowful widow, 
Suffer me, honored madam, in your great affliction, to exhibit to you a compassionate Redeemer. God has now taken from you that servant of his that was the nearest and best friend you had in this world, that was your wise and prudent guide, your affectionate and pleasant companion, who was so great a blessing while he lived to you and your family, and under Christ was so much the comfort and support of your life. You see, madam, where your resort must be. Your earthly friends can condole your loss, but cannot make it up to you. We must all confess ourselves to be but miserable comforters. But you may go and tell Jesus, and there you may have both support and reparation. His love and his presence is far beyond that of the nearest and most affectionate earthly friend. Now you are bereaved of your earthly consort. You may go to a spiritual husband and seek his compassion in his company. He is the fountain of all that wisdom and prudence, that piety, that tender affection and faithful care that you enjoyed in your departed consort. In him is an infinite fountain of all these things and of all good. In him you may have light in your darkness, comfort in your sorrow, and fullness of joy and glory in another world, in an everlasting union with your dear deceased relative, in the glorious presence of the same Redeemer, in whose presence is fullness of joy, and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. This doctrine also directs the bereaved, afflicted children that are, with hearts full of grief, now mourning over a dear departed father, where to go and what to do. You will no longer have your father's wisdom to guide you, his tender love to comfort and delight you, and his affectionate care to guard you and assist you, and his pious and judicious counsels to direct you, and his holy example set before you, and his fervent, humble, believing prayers with you and for you. But in the blessed Jesus, your Father's Lord and Redeemer, you may have much more than all those things. Your Father's virtues that made him so great a blessing to you were but the image of what is in Christ. Therefore go to him in your mourning. Go and tell Jesus, tell a compassionate Savior what has befallen you. Heretofore you have had an earthly father to go to, whose heart was full of tenderness to you. But the heart of his Redeemer is much more tender. His wisdom and his love is infinitely beyond that of an earthly parent. Go to him, and then you will surely find comfort. Go to him and you will find that, though you are bereaved, yet you are not left in any want. You will find that all your wants are supplied, and all your loss made up, and much more than so. But here I would particularly, in humility, address myself to my honored fathers, the sons of the deceased, that are improved in the same great work of the gospel ministry, or in other public business for the service of their generation. Honored sirs, Though it might be more proper for me to come to you for instruction and counsel than to take it upon me to exhort you, yet as I am one that ought to have a fellow feeling of your affliction and to look on myself as a sharer in it, and as you have desired me to speak in the name of Christ on this occasion, suffer me to mention to you that source of comfort, that infinite fountain of good, one of the largest dreams of which has failed by the death of an earthly father, even the blessed Jesus you will doubtless acknowledge it is an instance of his great goodness to you that you have been the sons of such a father, being sensible that your reputation and serviceableness in your generation have been under Christ, very much owing to the great advantages you have been under by his instructions, counsels, and education. 
And is it not fit that children that have learned of such a faithful servant of Christ and have been brought up at his feet, now he is dead, should do as John the Baptist's disciples did, go and tell Jesus, from whom you may receive comfort under your bereavement, and from whom you may receive more of that spirit that dwelt in him and greater degrees of those virtues he derived from Christ to cause you to shine brighter and to make you still greater blessings in your generation. Now death has veiled and hid from a sight a star that shone with reflected light. Our text and doctrine leads you to the sun that hath light in himself and shines with infinite, unfailing brightness. And while you go to Jesus, honored sirs, on this occasion for yourselves, I humbly desire your request to him for us, the surviving ministers of this county, that he would be with us. Now he has taken from us him that was a father amongst us. I next would address myself to the surviving pastor of this church. We may well look upon you, reverend sir, as one in an especial manner concerned in this awful providence, and that has a large share in the bereavement. You doubtless are sensible what reason you have to bless God for the advantage you have had in serving in the gospel of Christ, so long as you have done, with a venerable person deceased, as a son with a father, enjoying the benefit of his instructions, counsels, and example. And particularly, you will often recollect the affectionate and fatherly counsels he gave you to diligence and faithfulness in your Lord's work, with encouragement of his protection and assistance to carry you through all difficulties the last evening of this life. And now, dear sir, God has taken him from you as he took Elijah from Elisha, and he took John the Baptist, the New Testament Elijah, from his disciples. Therefore now you are directed what to do, Go and tell Jesus, as those disciples did. You have now a great work devolved upon you. You have him no more, who, while he lived, was a father to you, to guide and assist you, and take the burden of your great work from you. Therefore you have nowhere else to go but to your great Lord and Master, that has sent you to labor in that part of his vineyard, where his aged and now departed servant was employed, to seek strength and wisdom and divine influence and assistance from him, and a double portion of that spirit that dwelt in your predecessor. And lastly, the text I am upon may be of direction to us, the surviving ministers of this county, what to do on this sorrowful occasion. God has now taken our Father and Master from our head. He has removed him that has heretofore under Christ been very much our strength, that we have been wont to resort to it in difficult cases for instruction and direction, and that used to be amongst us from time to time in our associations, and that we were wont to behold as the head and ornament of those conventions. Where else can we now go but to Jesus, the ever-living head of the whole church and Lord of the whole harvest, the fountain of light, our great Lord and Master that sends all gospel ministers and on whom they universally depend? Let this awful providence bring us to look to Christ, to seek more of his presence with us, and that he would preside as head in our associations. Let it bring us to a more immediate and entire dependence upon him for instruction and direction in all our difficulties. Let us on this occasion consider what God has done in this county of late years. It was not many years ago that the county was filled with aged ministers that were our fathers, but our fathers, where are they? 
What a great alteration is made in a little time in the churches in this part of the land. How frequent of late have been the warnings of this kind that God has given us to prepare to give up our account. Let us go to Jesus and seek grace of him that we may be faithful while we live, and that he would assist us in our great work, that when we are also called to go hence, we may give up our account with joy and not with grief and that hereafter we may meet those our fathers that have gone before us in the faithful labors of the gospel, and that we may shine forth with them as the brightness of the firmament and the stars forever and ever. Amen. Jonathan Edwards, 1703-1758 Few individuals ever appeared in the Church of God who have merited and actually received higher tributes of respect than Jonathan Edwards. His intellectual powers were of no common order, and his industry in the cultivation of those powers is strongly marked in that wide extent of most important knowledge which he possessed. If we consider him as ranking with Hartley, Locke, and Bacon in the scales of intellect, we shall have little apprehension of his title to such distinction being disputed. His mighty mind grasped with ease those subjects at which others faltered. He saw truth almost intuitively and was equally keen in the detection of error in its varied shades. This distinguished man claims admiration not merely on the ground of uncommon strength of intellectual powers and intense application of mind, rewarded by proportionate acquirements, but also as a most humble and devoted servant of Christ, bringing all he had received into his service and living only to him. His soul was indeed a temple of the Holy Spirit and his life uniformly manifested all the simplicity, purity, disinterestedness, and elevated character of the gospel of Christ. The glory of God was his supreme object, whether engaged in his devotional exercises, his studies, his social intercourse, the discharge of his public ministry, or in the publication of his writings. All inferior motives seem to have been without any discernible influence upon him. He entered fully into the expressive language of Paul. The love of Christ constraineth me, for me to live is Christ. His personal example will long instruct, excite, and encourage, and his writings will necessarily be most highly esteemed so long as the love of truth prevails. It has been justly observed, the number of those men who have produced great and permanent changes in the character and condition of mankind and stamped their own image on the minds of succeeding generations is comparatively small, and, even of this small number, the great body have been indebted for their superior efficiency, at least in part, to extraneous circumstances, while very few can ascribe it to the simple strength of their own intellect. Yet here and there an individual can be found who, by his mere mental energy, has changed the course of human thought and feeling and led mankind onward in that new and better path which he had opened to their view. Such an individual was Jonathan Edwards, born in an obscure colony in the midst of a wilderness and educated at a seminary just commencing its existence, passing the better part of his life as a pastor of a frontier village and the residue of an Indian missionary in a still humbler hamlet, he discovered and unfolded a system of the divine moral government so near, so clear, so full, that while at its first disclosure it needed no aid from its friends and feared no opposition from its enemies, it has at length constrained a reluctant world to bow in homage to its truth. Jonathan Edwards was born on the 5th of October, 1703, at Windsor, on the banks of the Connecticut. 
His father, the Reverend Timothy Edwards, was minister of that place about 60 years. He died in January 1758 in the 89th year of his age, and not two months before this his only son. He was a man of great piety and youthfulness. On November 6, 1694, he married Esther Stoddard, daughter of the Reverend and celebrated Solomon Stoddard of Northampton in the 23rd year of her age. They lived together in the married state above 63 years. Mrs. Edwards, our author's mother, was born June 2, 1672, and lived to about 90 years of age, some years after her son, a remarkable instance of the small decay of mental powers at so advanced an age. This venerable couple had 11 children, one son, the subject of these memoirs, and 10 daughters, four of whom were older and six younger than himself. From the highly spiritual character and intellectual attainments of his parents, it might naturally be expected that his early education would be attended with no common advantages. This was a fact. Many were the prayers presented by parental affection that this only and beloved son might be filled with the Holy Spirit, from a child know the Holy Scriptures, and be great in the sight of the Lord. They who thus fervently and constantly commended him to God manifested equal diligence in training them up for God. Prayer excited to exertion and exertion again was encouraged by prayer. The domestic circle was a scene of supplication, and it was a scene of instruction. In the abode of such exemplary servants of God, instruction abounded. That which the eye saw, as well as that which the ear heard, formed a lesson. There was nothing in the example of those who taught to diminish the force of instruction. There was nothing in social habits which counteracted the lessons of wisdom, and infused those principles which in after years produced a fruit of folly and sin. On the contrary, there was everything to enlarge, to purify, and to elevate the heart, and at the same time to train the mind to those exercises of thought from which alone imminent attainments can be expected. The faithful religious instruction of his parents rendered him, when a child, familiarly conversant with God and Christ, with his own character and duty, with a way of salvation, with the nature of that eternal life which begun on earth as perfected in heaven. Their prayers were not forgotten, and their efforts did not remain without effect. He had a strict and inviolable regard to justice in all his dealings with his neighbors, and was very careful to provide things honest in the sight of all men, so that scarcely a man had any dealings with him who was not conscious of his uprightness. His great benevolence to mankind discovered itself, among other ways, by the uncommon regard he showed to liberality and charity to the poor and distressed. He was much in recommending this, both in his public discourses and in private conversation. He often declared it to be his opinion that professed Christians were greatly deficient in this duty, and much more so than in most other parts of external Christianity. He often observed how much this is spoken of, recommended and encouraged in the Holy Scriptures, especially in the New Testament. And it was his opinion that every particular church ought, by frequent and liberal contributions, to maintain a public stock that might be ready for the poor and necessitous members of that church, and that the principal business of deacons is to take care of the poor in the faithful and judicious improvement and distribution of the church's contributions lodged in their hands. He was thought by some to be distant and unsociable in his manners, but this was owing to the want of a better acquaintance. He was not, indeed, a man of many words, and was somewhat reserved in the company of strangers, and of those on whose candor and friendship he did not know that he could rely. 
And this was probably owing to two causes. First, a strict guard he set over his tongue from his youth. From experience and observation, he early discovered that the sins of the tongue make up a very formidable proportion of all the sins committed by men and lead to a very large proportion of their remaining sins. He therefore resolved to take the utmost care never to sin with his tongue, to avoid not only uttering reproaches himself, but receiving them and listening to them from others, to say nothing for the sake of giving pain or wounding the feelings or reputation of others, to say nothing evil concerning them, except when an obvious duty required him to do it, and then to speak as if nobody had been as vile as himself, and as if he had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, never to employ himself in idle, trivial, and impertinent talk, which generally makes up a great part of the conversation of those who are full of words in all companies, and to make sure that mark of a perfect man given by James, if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. He was sensible that in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, and therefore refrained his lips and habituated himself to think before he spoke, and to propose some good end in all his words, which led him conformably to an apostolic precept, to be above many others slow to speak. Secondly, this was in part the effect of his bodily constitution. He possessed but a comparatively small stock of animal life. His spirits were low, and he had neither the vivacity nor strength of lungs to spare that would have been requisite in order to render him what might be called an affable, sprightly companion in all circles. They who have a great flow of animal spirits, and so can speak with more ease and less expense and exhaustion than others, may doubtless lawfully engage in free conversation in all companies for a lower end than that which he proposed, to please or to render themselves agreeable to others. But not so he who has not such an abundant supply. It becomes him to reserve what he has for higher and more important service. Besides the want of animal spirit lays a man under a natural inability of exercising that freedom of conversation at all times in whatever company he is, which those possessed of more vivacity naturally and easily glide into, and the greater degree of humility and benevolence, of good sense and social feeding, will not remove this obstacle." His conversation with his friends was always savory and profitable, and this he was remarkable and almost singular. He was not accustomed to spend his time with them in evil speaking or foolish jesting, idle chit-chat and telling stories, but his mouth was that of the just, which bringeth forth wisdom and whose lips dispense knowledge. His tongue was as the pen of a ready writer, while he conversed about important heavenly and divine things, of which his heart was so full, in a manner so new and original, so natural and familiar as to be most entertaining and instructive, so that none of his friends could enjoy his company without instruction and profit, unless it was by their own fault. As a scholar, his intellectual furniture exceeded what was common under the disadvantages experienced at that time in these remote colonies. He had an extensive acquaintance with the arts and sciences, with classical and Hebrew literature, with physics, mathematics, history, chronology, ethics, and mental philosophy. By the blessing of God and his indefatigable labors to the last, he was constantly treasuring up useful knowledge, both human and divine. One of the positive causes of his high character and great success as a preacher was the deep and pervading solemnity of his mind. He had at all times a solemn consciousness of the presence of God.
This was visible in his looks and his general demeanor. It obviously had a controlling influence over all his preparations for the pulpit and was most manifest in all his public services. Its effect on an audience is immediate and not to be resisted. He appeared with such gravity and solemnity, and his words were so full of ideas that few speakers have been able to command the attention of an audience as he did. His knowledge of the human heart and its operations has scarcely been equaled by that of an uninspired preacher. He derived this knowledge from his familiarity with the testimony of God concerning it in the Bible, from his thorough acquaintance with his own heart, and from his profound knowledge of mental philosophy. We can probably select no individual of all who lived in that long period of time who has manifested a more ardent or elevated piety towards God, a warmer or more expanded benevolence towards man, a greater purity or disinterestedness or integrity of character, one who gave the concentrated strength of all his powers more absolutely to the one end of glorifying God and the salvation of man, and then reflect that at the age of 54 in the highest vigor of all his faculties and the fullness of his usefulness, when he was just entering on the most important station of his life, he yielded to the stroke of death. We look towards his grave in mute astonishment, unable to penetrate those clouds and darkness which hover around it. One of his weeping friends thus explained this most surprising dispensation. He was pouring in a flood of light upon mankind, which their eyes as yet were too feeble to bear. If this was not the reason, we can only say, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions.
there is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.